Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, we're celebrating baking season with one of my favorite bakers. Samantha Senevaratna talks about her new book. It's all about baking smarter, so you can feel more confident when you set the oven to 350 and cross your fingers. We're also celebrating Hanukkah by sharing producer Tegan Engel's conversation with Shamu Fenveshi Sadeh. Shamu is the co-founder of Adama Farm. They'll explore the agricultural roots of Judaism and the spiritual connectedness of the Jewish faith and the natural world. Plus, Shamu's wife Jamie pops in to talk about their family's latka recipe. But first... Samantha Sanavaratna is a baker, a contributor to The New York Times, the host of Everyday Cooking on Magnolia Network, and a James Beard Award-nominated cookbook author. Her latest book is Bake Smart, Sweets and Secrets from My Oven to Yours. I first met Sam more than 10 years ago when we were both working at Fine Cooking Magazine. My favorite part of the day was around 2 p.m. when she'd call all the editors down to the test kitchen to taste what she and the team cooked that day. It was a mix of savory and sweet dishes, and once the recipes were perfected, they could run in the magazine. Sam, on the days we'd be tasting one of your personal recipes, those were always my favorite days in the test kitchen, because even then, in your early career, you were a talented baker. I've been following along on your trajectory from the test kitchen to Martha Stewart and Food 52, a couple of web and TV cooking shows, and the New York Times, and then a James Beard Award nomination. So congratulations on all your success and now your third baking book. I love it. Thank you for joining us on Seasoned and talking with me about Bake Smart. Oh, thank you so much, Robin. What a wonderful, warm intro. I'm so pleased to be here. You deserve it. So, of course... (laughs) If we had a dollar for every time someone said, I cook, but I don't bake, we'd be millionaires. Mm-hmm. Billionaires. <laughs> yeah, billionaires even. <laughs> Why do you think some people feel intimidated by baking? Primarily, I think it's just practice. You know, we all have to cook every single day. We have to eat. We have to feed our families. So we cook out of necessity and joy. But baking is just for fun and it's just for pleasure. So I think on the whole, most people don't have as much practice doing it. And so It is simple. It's just as easy and free and joyful as cooking can be. But most people just don't have the time to practice. That's all it is. And they get (laughs) hung up on sort of, they think, uh, oh, anyone can cook, but baking is more of a science. So that's sort of intimidating. I think cooking and baking are both a science and an art. I think they have elements of both, each of them. And there is a tendency for the rules of baking to be you know, perpetuated over and over again, like never, never do X, Y, Z. And I think those kinds of things just sort of intimidate people for no reason, because I think a lot of those things, you can bend the rules, you can explore, you can make swaps, you can make adjustments, even as you're going with baking, just like you can with cooking. It just takes a little bit of confidence and a little bit of willingness to not have it come out perfect every time. (laughs) 
which mm-hmm. I think people have for cooking, but not necessarily for baking for some reason. People are really hard on themselves with baking. I don't know why, because even a not so perfect cookie is still pretty good. So it's worth the try anyway. Exactly. So you say Bake Smart is not a how-to cookbook. It is a book filled with the baking secrets that you tell your friends. And oh, God, I love a good secret. What are some (laughs) nuggets? What are the things bakers think they absolutely need to do, but you are whispering in their ears that they don't actually have to do that thing to bake smarter? Oh, gosh, there's so many little things. It's so fun. My friends always call me when they're baking and sort of ask me questions as they're going along. I think, oh, there's so many, Robin. You can soften butter in the microwave. I don't know why people said you can't in the past, but you absolutely can. You can make substitutions as you go. If you like brown sugar better than white, try it, switch it up. I mean, it's endless. It's truly endless. I love that the book is broken up into five chapters focused around baking's staple ingredients. So it's butter, sugar, eggs, flour, nuts, and cocoa. Those are one chapter. And yeast. Mm -hmm. If you understand these backbones of your bakes, there's no dessert you can't pull off. So let's first talk about butter since it's your favorite fat. It's mine too. (laughs) It's absolutely my favorite fat. (laughs) It's the best one of all the fats. (laughs) Well, I figured that if I explain a little bit about how I develop a recipe and what the building blocks are, then people know why they're doing something and can decide when they want to follow the rules or when they want to break them. So butter, temperature of butter in baking is pretty important, and it's going to give you all different kinds of results. If you make a cookie with melted butter, for example, it's going to spread more. It's probably going to be crispier. If you make it with room temperature butter, it'll be the cookie that you kind of imagine. And if you make it with softened butter, it'll be somewhere in between. So I think temperature of butter is pretty important, and the way to know what you're doing is basically just practicing. (laughs) It's trying different ones. But the thing is, it sounds so rigid. You are going to get different results depending on what you use, but it's always going to be good. So it's worth the exploration. To get to a little bit of your love for butter, you start off that chapter with a story um, (laughs) about your favorite French butter. So Mm -hmm. tell us, what lengths were you willing to go to to have a really great butter back here in the States? (laughs) Well, there are so many butters available here in the States, especially us in the tri-state area. We have access to a lot. But I used to bring back my favorite butter from France whenever I went because the cargo hold where you put your suitcases is really, really cold. And so you can bring things like butter back with you as long as you check it. And it'll stay nice and cold and firm and perfect. So I used to bring big blocks of it back from Paris every time I went. Five pounds. <laughs> yeah, probably more. Although now I'm wondering, is that like a TSA violation? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Say, are the customs people saying, ma'am, no one needs this much butter? <laughs> no, exactly. But it was so good. You know, French butter is like, it's so rich and the fat content is really high and it has a wonderful pliable texture. So when you're making things like pastry, you can really feel the difference when you use high quality butter. Another secret that you impart on your readers is the idea that it's okay actually to bake with salted butter. And this is an old myth or something maybe that you were like, no, I think this this rule needs to be updated. So talk to me about salted versus unsalted butter. 
I think in each stick of butter, a stick of salted butter, there's only around a quarter teaspoon of salt. And that is just not going to make a huge difference either way on your baked goods. So I say just use whatever you have available. Make your life easy. If you use salted butter on your toast, then continue to use it in your baking. It won't make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. I have two types of butter that I have on hand at all times. One is like a special fancy butter, a luxury butter. And that is for like important baking projects or just like toast. That's for me where I'm like, Mm -hmm. the butter is the star. This is the point. And then I have like just an everyday butter, the store brand butter that just can go in everything. But it's, it's okay to have a special butter. (laughs) It's wonderful to have a special butter. (laughs) I love that idea. So there are several chocolate chip cookie recipes in the book, and I just want to say that I think there's nothing better than a buttery chocolate chip cookie, right? So this this is not the time for Crisco or some other fat. Uh, Could you talk to us about cookies? (laughs) Even I want to know, too, the story behind the cover cookies, because that's the cover of the book. Oh, yeah. Um, So on the cover, you have the chewy chocolate chip cookies and then on the right side is the giant choco chunkies which (laughs) are my favorite i think there is a place there's absolutely a place for crisco and cookies if that's what you like because actually crisco makes the cookies have a wonderful crunchy texture so if you're more interested in texture over flavor then go ahead and use crisco for me i agree with you i like a really buttery, buttery, buttery chocolate chip cookies. So all of my chocolate chip cookies have a butter base. The difference between them is kind of how you incorporate the butter and also the sugar. And those two things, the way you manipulate them is how you get different textures of cookie. So I also in the book have a really thin and crisp one that you sort of, you mix the butter in cold in the food processor and then roll it out into a thin sheet and cut it into rectangles. And those are lovely and crispy and perfect with a cup of tea. They almost have sort of a shortbread vibe to them, but they're still a chocolate chip cookie. So I wanted to give people a whole variety of options. And it's really interesting to me that you can get with basically the same ingredients with all the different cookies, just in different ratios and different temperatures, you can get such different wonderful results. There's a good bit of food science in the introductions to each chapter and in the recipe margins. And um, these are where, like, some of your secrets are. Uh, (laughs) I used to think that chilling cookie dough was a thing that I did to make it easier for me to work with. But now (laughs) I understand that there's a totally, entirely different reason why cookie dough really should be chilled and rested. So can you talk about that? There was an article in the New York Times, I think, that sort of talked about resting cookie dough, and that came out maybe five or ten years ago or something. And ever since then, everybody's been resting their cookie dough. It really makes a difference, I think. It makes the cookies, the spread of the cookies more even. It makes the color more even. It deepens the flavor. There's something about the hydration, the time, the time it rests gives everything a chance to hydrate and properly combine and then your your cookie it's kind of amazing it goes from you know when you bake a cookie right away and sometimes the edges some of the edges are thin and some of them are thick and then they're sort of like the center is really pale and not set but the edges are really crisp that never happens if you rest your dough it just sort of evens everything out and becomes 
the perfect texture throughout. And I think I have a way that I like to scoop cookies. I, I don't like to scoop cookies. I'm pretty, I find it sort of tedious. And I know that not everybody has a cookie scoop at home. So what I like to do is form the dough into a block and then cut the dough into squares and then use that as my portioned out scoops. And that also makes it really easy to chill the dough. You can chill the block whole and then you don't have to wrestle with hard dough or anything like that. And you don't have to bake them all at once. And if you're really desperate and just cannot wait for a rest, which I totally understand, sometimes I feel that way too, you can just cut off one piece, bake that off, satisfy your craving, and then let the rest of the dough sit in the fridge for a little while and then come back to it when they'll be really perfect. I love that. I was relieved to read that there's really no need to sift flour because I almost never do it anyway. What <laughs> what else do you want bakers to know about working with flour? Mm, sifting is a good one. I don't even know why originally. I think it might have been something to do with the milling process back in the day when it wasn't as consistent as it is now. So there's really no need to sift, but you do need to whisk and you need to whisk well because it's important to make sure that the leaveners and things are equally dispersed throughout. So whisking will solve that problem. What else do you need to know about flour? Flour can go bad. More likely with things like whole wheat flours or spelt flours where the whole you know wheat germ is kept intact so then there are more oils and those things can go rancid. But I, if I have room, I don't really have room. I live in a little New York apartment, but I keep my whole wheat flours and nut flours and things like that in the fridge. And I have a bin of all-purpose flour, but give it a smell. You know, I think you can always tell if something is okay if you smell it. Well, what's and a you'll bad know. flour smell? What is that like? Oh, it smells just off. Flour smells clean and fresh and you'll just know there's like a weird old smell. That, <laughs> that you won't like. So give your flower a smell. Flowers aren't interchangeable necessarily. I caught my mom making something that was supposed to be with cake flour, which she made it with all-purpose flour, and I think she just didn't even realize that they were different. The different protein content of various, you know, cake has less and bread has more. So keep in mind that flowers are not interchangeable. Your apple galette uses a buckwheat flour and your raspberry tart uses a rye flour. So can you talk about alternative flours and why they're worth experimenting with and what they add to a bake? Well, you know, flour is a pretty all-purpose wheat flour. is very It's pretty neutral, which is nice sometimes. But sometimes it's really fun to experiment with alternative flavors. Rye flour is beautiful and nutty and goes so well. I think it goes really well with like raspberries and blackberries. What are those kinds of berries called? Forest berries? Anyway, <laughs> a, um, a rye flour goes beautifully with berries and chocolate. And buckwheat flour has sort of a grassy taste, I think. Yeah, and buckwheat isn't a wheat. It's not a wheat. It actually is, I believe it is a grass of some kind. And then the flour is really like the seeds, I thought, made uh -huh. the ground up. It's just fun to swap them in a little bit to try to give that building block more heft and more flavor and experiment with your baking. You're listening to my conversation with Samantha Senevaratna. We're talking about her new cookbook, Bake Smart. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Time for a short break. When we get back, more ways to experiment with your baking, from the joys of yeasted and rough laminated doughs to baking with bar chocolate over chips. It's like when you cook with wine. They say, like, if you don't want to drink it, 
why are you cooking with it? <laughs> so the same goes for chocolate. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. In a few minutes, producer Tegan Engel explores the ways Jewish practices connect to farming as we gear up for Hanukkah. First, let's pick up my conversation with baker Samantha Senevaratna. Her new book is Bake Smart. I always love knowing what chocolate bakers use, and you don't mention a specific favorite brand in your book, but I do know that you are not a fan of chocolate chips. <laughs> and so why... <laughs> Why should bakers skip the bags of those iconic shaped morsels and like, sorry, Toll House? <laughs> I feel badly. I feel like I've given myself a reputation because I say it all the time. I don't like chips so much. I think because there's something about the way that they're formulated in order to hold their shape, I think it gives the chocolate itself sort of a waxiness that is unpleasant. That said, I'm never going to shame anybody for using chips. Use chips. I use chips sometimes, too. It happens. But in general, I think you can get better quality chocolate in bar form. And then also you can use it in more places because when you melt chips, they're really thick. So they don't work as well to coat things or to dip things. Whereas if you just buy bar chocolate, you can kind of use it for everything. There's such a great variety and you can see what bar chocolate you like the most. I really, for baking... I use Guitard a lot. It's available and it has a really nice, clean, chocolatey flavor. And it's not especially fruity. I prefer chocolate that's less fruity. If you do like fruity, I think Giardelli is kind of fruity in a nice way. So sometimes it works. With bar chocolate, there's so many available. So you kind of, you have the opportunity to experiment. And also it's just great for eating. Yeah. Your tip from the book, one of your secrets is, Use a chocolate that you are going to want to nibble on while you're actually doing your baking, because then you know that is a chocolate that is worth your cookie. Makes you feel like you're loving yourself when you when you go for it. Exactly. It's like when you cook with wine. They say, like, if you don't want to drink it, why are you cooking with it? <laughs> so the same goes for chocolate. Many more people in 2023 have experience with yeasted doughs and proofing than mm -hmm. they did in, let's say, 
2019. So <laughs> they'll be empowered to make some of your bun, bread, and donut recipes. And the recipe I'm most looking forward to making is your carrot cake buns because it's a weekend project and I love a baking weekend project. And it's also a good desserty breakfast mashup. So <laughs> you have a secret here about using room temp butter. That's one of your one of your rules for your dough and for your buns. And it applies to all the buns really. So why is Room temp, and maybe um, there's a theme here. I guess you can tell butter really is my favorite fat. <laughs> Why is room temp butter important for any of your buns? All of these buns use a enriched dough. So that's a yeasted dough that has eggs, butter, and sugar in addition to all the other things. So, and milk usually. So those are really like fatty, lovely, supple doughs. And using room temperature, even softened butter, is important because you want it to incorporate properly. It's not like a pastry dough where you're trying to keep little pieces of butter intact so that they create flakes. You're really trying to incorporate the butter into the dough. So room temperature or even softened butter is imperative for a nice yeasted, sticky dough. Those are my favorite. people should know that you just have a gift for describing doughs in, <laughs> in certain ways. Like one one way you describe it is that your dough should feel like a puppy's belly. You know, <laughs> so we've all rubbed a dog's belly before, so we know. But you're just so <laughs> gifted in this way. <laughs> it's how I, it's because I love them so much. I love yeasted dough so much, enriched yeasted dough. It's just the softest, most supple. It's warm. It's I mean, it's just so fun to work with. It's forgiving. And it's so cozy, like a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) So also in your yeast chapter, for bakers who are intimidated by making a laminated dough. So here's, there's all these sort of categories of bakers. So there are people who say, I cook, but I don't bake. And then there are bakers who say, I bake, but I don't do croissants. (laughs) They're just so, so, so hard. So for bakers who are intimidated by the classic laminated dough, can you talk about your rough laminated dough? Because this is sort of like a riff on that classic, and it's easier. It's so much easier. I didn't invent this concept. This has been around for a while. So a classic laminated dough, you take a butter block, and then you wrap dough around it, seal it up, and then you have to roll and fold that a billion times until you get perfectly laminated dough. It's tricky because sometimes the butter can leak out or if it melts, it'll incorporate into your dough. It's just, there's a lot of ways that it can go wrong and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. It's a shame. I have made some terrible croissants in my life. No, I don't believe it. (laughs) I've made terrible everything at some point, but practice. (laughs) This rough laminated dough is essentially, you just cut the butter into the flour mixture just as you would any kind of pie dough. Yeast is folded in there too, and then you sort of roll it and fold it a few times, not as many as you would with a classic, you know, fully laminated dough, but a little bit less. So it's, you know, it's not going to yield the perfect bakery millions of layers that a fancy French baker would make, but it gets you pretty close with so much less effort and a little bit less worry, I hope. And I think the results are pretty good, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe if you're a baker who is um, nervous about croissants, you can graduate to them. After you master this dough, you'll be like, oh, I'm I'm ready for this next thing now. Yeah. Or you could be like me who just feels like, this is where I want to (laughs) stop. This is as much effort as I want to put into this. And the results are great. I was making, I actually started making a dough like this when I did my first book. 
And I have a Danish recipe in that book. And once I realized that you could do this, but just throwing the yeast into the flour mixture, I was like, I'm never going back to the old way because this is great and so much easier. <laughs> there are a number of recipes in the book that incorporate frangipan. So can you talk to our bakers about that? Why is that worth mastering and including in some of your bakes? Frangipan is a, it's sort of a pastry cream made with nuts. So it's eggs, sugar, nuts, and butter, and a little bit of salt. I think it's so lovely baked underneath fruit. It bakes, when you bake it, it turns into sort of like a, a cross between a chewy cookie and cake made of nuts. And so if you put that underneath fruit in a tart or swirl it into brownies, you know, you can cut a croissant in half and basically slather that on and then stick them back together and put them in the oven until it bakes or on top of toast and cook that. It's so rich and delicious and easy to make. It just makes things so much more special. It's like so few ingredients, but it's so delicious and so special. <laughs> I love frangipan, almond paste, things like that. I love those things. I think those are like the little accents for baking that take it up a notch. Sam, it's been really lovely talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your book with us. Thank you, Robin. It's really a pleasure. It's so nice to see you. That was Samantha Sanavaratna. She's the author of Bake Smart, Sweets and Secrets, From My Oven to Yours. Want to meet Sam in person? She'll be in Bethel at Bird's Books on Sunday, December 10th. Go say hi, bring a baked treat, and get a book signed. I'll link to the event on our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. And if you're feeling the urge to bake, you'll find Sam's recipe for chewy chocolate chip cookies there as well. Now, in celebration of Hanukkah, producer Tegan Engel talks with our next guest about his work at a farm in Falls Village, Connecticut. My name is Shamu Fenveshi Sadeh. I am the managing director of education at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. Shamu is also the co-founder of the Adama Farm, a project rooted in Jewish agricultural and spiritual practices, where he leads a three-month-long residential fellowship for young adults. Adama offers shorter farm-based educational programs, too, focused around social and environmental justice at the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. Now, I'll admit it feels really difficult recording a story celebrating a Jewish holiday while there is such horrific violence happening in Palestine and Israel. For both Jews and Palestinians, topics like ancestral connections to land and the importance of olive oil, both mentioned in this interview, can be really complex and volatile. To navigate the difficulty of this time and these issues, I lean on the things that root me, a deep commitment to peace and liberation for all people, learning from nature, connecting with people, and sharing food, which is why I chose to speak with a thoughtful Jewish farmer and educator for this Hanukkah holiday episode. Later in the conversation, Shamu's wife Jamie shares a bit about the family's Hanukkah latke recipe. But first, I talk with Shamu about teaching people about farming and the connections between Judaism, justice, agriculture, and the earth. We're really steeped in experiential education, so I want people to experience the connection. I want people to understand where the food comes from, what are some of the processes that help to get there, what it feels like to say a blessing, some form of gratitude over food you've grown yourself, what it means to, to experience the agricultural origins of many of our holidays, to have a first fruits parade on the holiday of the Jewish holiday of Shavuot in the late springtime, what it means to 
celebrate the fall harvest holiday of Sukkot when you're actually working on a farm? And what is the, the agricultural origins of so many of our rituals and so much really of the Jew- Jewish tradition altogether? And a lot of folks, certainly I didn't understand this growing up as a Jewish person in this country, don't know that our symbol, the Jews symbol for ourselves, our logo before two, 300 years ago, was the menorah. Yeah. And it wasn't the menorah in terms of the Hanukkah menorah, but it was the menorah that had a very important place in the temple that existed both as a traveling tent while we were wandering in the desert and in the first and second temples in Jerusalem. So that menorah was very much the symbol and one of the ways that we represented ourselves. And that menorah is very clearly based and this is from lots of research that's been done for years and learning that's been done for many years, on a plant, on a desert sage plant. So Jews have been so used to being in diaspora, not in a land, that we forget that many of our primary symbols are actually based on our time in a land as an indigenous people in the Middle East. Yeah. And I think this piece around connecting with the earth and connecting with agricultural traditions has gotten lost over centuries of people kind of worshiping in synagogues and becoming this very kind of written culture. And so this piece Mm -hmm. around reconnecting with the earth and the lessons that we can learn from the earth is a very important thing. And that's why I was really excited to speak with you. It's something that I have connected with as an adult as I got connected to Judaism as a spiritual tradition. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some examples of Jewish practices and values that connect with agriculture and social justice. I'm thinking even of, uh, I think it's called- The corners? Yes. 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 Peah. Peah is the Hebrew word for corner. Peah in plural. So it's the same word as the side locks, I guess it's called. That's another interpretation of it. Not cutting your hair on that part of your head. It comes from the same tradition as not harvesting the corners of your field. If you can imagine a time where people had small fields and poor people and neighbors and community members would be walking past each other's fields and there was a collective communal acknowledgement that the corner of a person's field wasn't theirs to harvest and that that was actually open for anyone to come and harvest and take food. And that's just one example There's also the seventh, well, the seventh day, Shabbat. It's part of a whole cycles of seven where we don't work, people on our land don't work, our animals don't work, everyone gets to rest. And in the seventh year, it's rest for the land, but also a sense of ownership being shifted. And seven times seven years, the 49th year and the 50th year, known as the Jubilee in English, Yovel, in Hebrew is a time where land ownership is totally reshuffled, redistributed in a way that whatever land you acquired in the last 49 years from successes or whatever land you lost, you're now returned to kind of an even playing field. It's a really radical and beautiful concept. And those are just a few of very many examples of that. On our farm, we have a sliding scale CSA which means some people pay nothing, some people pay a couple hundred dollars, some people pay 700 or or $1,000. We also have partnerships with 
three local food banks and other food justice organizations to distribute food at no cost. Mm, I love that. It's how you're kind of taking this ancestral practice of gleaning and sharing what's at the corners and the edges of the field, but actually putting it in modern times of how do you then actually bring that food out to people who are in need and these pieces around redistributing wealth and kind of creating baseline justice and equity as these Jewish values. More of us should put these things into practice. So I love that you're teaching young people these things. That, that's what drew me. I did not grow up religious at all and was very social justice focused. And when I started learning these foundational justice elements of Judaism, I thought, oh, my goodness, these things I believe are actually part of this tradition. And that's what got me interested in participating and learning more. So I'm grateful to learn about the work that you're doing. I wonder if we could talk a little about Hanukkah. What does this holiday mean to you? It's a time to celebrate light in the darkness. It's a time to in some ways celebrate rest and quiet. And there's all the historical echoes of cultural resistance to an imperial power and rededicating, Hanukkah means rededication, rededicating the temple, rededicating holy space that was destroyed. And there's a sense of miracle and hope, you know, enough one vial of oil that lasted eight days Yeah, and it's definitely a holiday that's, for us, we're also centered around the kids and their excitement. It's a very accessible holiday. It's a home holiday. It's not a synagogue holiday. There's not a lot of prayers or texts. There's just short blessings that are said over lighting in the menorah and over the food. I'm curious, how are you dealing with the challenge this year of celebrating a holiday while there is a war and great suffering happening in Israel and in Gaza? I think Jewish holidays or Jewish culture in general, we're adept at understanding complexities, right? We've Mm -hmm. been around for a while. Things have been passed down. We've adapted lots of things that are not relevant in our day that were relevant a few thousand years ago. And we also have a, a written record of arguments and different streams within Judaism. And and Hanukkah is actually one of those. I think, you know, the Maccabees, who I'm grateful that they rededicated the temple. And it's pretty clear from the historian's point of view that they were extremists. And none of us would actually side with the (laughs) the Maccabees today. Yeah, they would kill people they disagreed with, even within the community. So that's not what we're going for. And I think it's a good gateway into a conversation about how we deal with complexity and nuance and disagreement inside the community and outside, especially in this day of social media, simplicity, sound bites, hashtags, where people's position is reduced into something very black and white. That's not what we're going for mm-hmm. on a Hanukkah. I think about these values, we were talking about Jewish values, the value of tikkun olam, of repairing the world, and this commitment to what that really means, not just to like help, but to repair. And I'm wondering, Mm. do you think about that in terms of this moment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we think about what it means to have one vial of oil last eight days, what small actions look like that can have much bigger positive consequences for people. And I think it's another time for us to understand 
our place and other people's place in the world. And it's not a simple kind of imperial conquest versus resistance fighters, that that whole thing is more complicated than we make it, especially today, that we should all feel secure in our home boundaries. Yeah, I think of this principle of that every human life is sacred and Mm -hmm. that we need to in every moment, remember that every human life is sacred and create a world where we can actually treat every human life as sacred. Mm-hmm. So with Hanukkah, oil is this essential piece and it is an essential agricultural element as well. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of oil in Jewish traditions? It's interesting because it's not, you know, I've lived in northern North America for most of my life. So it's not an experience we have here of like olive oil, right, of pressing olive oil. Olives are harvested in the late summer, early fall, and then pressed in the fall, early winter. And that oil, obviously, we understand it as a food source. But it was also, you know, the early stories about Abraham from the Torah building an altar. And prayer wasn't the prayer that we do now, and the words weren't the words we use today that Abraham was using But he would build an altar of stones, set up a few stones on top of each other, and pour some olive oil over them. That was it. That was the altar. Beautiful simplicity to it and the importance of, yeah, and the holiness of that that oil that was food. And it was also light because these menorahs were all, wasn't so much the beeswax candle, it was an oil menorah that had a little dish that held some olive oil and a wick in it. Yeah. And olives were, yeah. It's hugely important in that part of the world and really important to us. And they're one of the seven species that we think about when we think about our ancestral agricultural heritage. That was one of the things that I found so fascinating when I read that about Abraham pouring the oil on the stone, because that's a practice that is still used in cultures, indigenous cultures Mm. all over the world. And so that was one of the things that really helped me see like, oh, this is actually Mm. this indigenous ancestral earth-connected practice because it's still practiced in so many. All over West Africa, people do that in many other places. So. Part of the of what we're trying to do here at Adama on the farm and our whole organization, Isabel Friedman, our organization, which is also now called Adama, is remind people some of those practices, give them experiences that help connect them in a way, you know, build a fire and pray around a fire. The actual experiences that are not just from the book, but that are with oil, fire, soil, water. Before Shabbat every week, until it gets really cold, we take a mikvah, we have a ritual immersion in the lake. We say a blessing and jump in the lake. Mm, That's beautiful. You're listening to Tegan Engel's conversation with Shamu Fenveshi Sadeh. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. Coming up, Shamu's Jewish ancestral foods, like sauerkraut, plus latkes and toppings, applesauce, of course, but other toppings, too. We make our own maple syrup, so I'm sure at some point the kids will bust out the maple syrup. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. 
I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. We're celebrating the start of Hanukkah by sharing producer Tegan Engel's conversation with Shamu Fenveshi Sadeh. He's a farmer and the managing director of education at Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. The whole organization, actually, the farm and the center, are called Adama. It's a word meaning that people and the planet are one. Here's Tegan. I love talking with Shamu about our Jewish values and ancient agricultural traditions and their modern-day applications. But I couldn't resist bringing his wife Jamie into our conversation. She does lots of the cooking for their family's Hanukkah celebrations. So we cook latkes. Every time we cook latkes, I say to myself, I'm not doing this again next year because the (laughs) fire alarms are going off and there's a huge mess. And I think I have a pile of latkes, you know, out there on the table. But as I turn around, as I'm cooking them, my kids are eating them one after the next. And so we go to a potluck and there's nothing left because they're, you know, they're, they're yummy, but eaten quick. And for people who don't know, latkes are a potato pancake that's fried in oil. For this holiday that honors oil, we do a lot of cooking in oil, which in the diversity of Jews in this diaspora can look like all different foods. But for a lot of people coming from European Jewish heritage, latkes are one of the things. How do you make your latkes? So my dad uses a recipe where it's basically just potatoes and onions. And I think that I'm going to do that every year. It kind of turns out to be more like home fries or hash, you know, hash browns. And so there's some pressure from other places to make them more like pancakes. So I, you know, take potatoes from our farm. Sometimes I've tried in the past to bring in other root vegetables, although those aren't as exciting for the kids like daikon radish or rutabaga or beets or carrots. But yeah, we've stuck with the potatoes for sure. And And so your dad's recipe is just potatoes and onions. Right, exactly. He's a purist. And again, that takes a lot of oil. We need some schmaltz is what we need. Great. And the schmaltz is chicken fat for people who don't know. Yeah, which can give a nice flavor if you eat chicken. That can really help. And the flavor, you know, we've had maybe some lamb or goat schmaltz, but it definitely adds a different flavor. And so for your latkes, are you adding egg and flour or something else to them to bind it? Yeah, depends on the year. But yes, I have resolved to that egg or matzo meal. Are you washing your potatoes to rinse them first or do you just grate them? I mean, they're organic from the farm. So, you know, we peel them and then grate and then squeeze all the water out. So because then it makes them more crunchy. Sure. Yeah. I grate my potatoes and then I rinse them to remove the starch because right. then they don't turn gray while they're, they don't oxidize while right. they're Yes. Sitting. Yeah. I let them sort of soak in the water, but then rinse, like really rinse and, and squeeze out all the water. Right. So right. Can, so after you grate yeah. them, you, you soak after, them right. and then squeeze all the water out of them. Yeah. And your onion, do you grate the onion or do you chop it? Yes. You... Grate the onion too. And you squeeze the yeah. water out of the onion before you yeah. add it to yeah, the potatoes? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So those are some of the key things because you don't want the batter to be so runny. Right. Exactly. But you want all that flavor in there. Yeah. Yeah, The thing I I do to keep my latkes from burning is I usually cook them in about a half inch of oil. And so they actually fry more quickly and are less greasy because of that. And then I when I'm done, I stack them on a cooling rack, like a cake or cookie cooling rack on a sheet pan. And I stack the latkes like leaning against each other so that they're not soaking in any oil like the oil in the drips oil. down and Ooh, i think that's that's a, good idea. That's a key uh-huh. thing yeah and then they can be reheated really easily in a hot oven because then the air circulates all over them so that's a good trick to keep them from getting soggy uh-huh. but so for both of you what are some of the toppings that you like to serve on your latkes i do love applesauce that'd probably be my favorite 
And I also like going, you know, in a more savory direction. So we make sauerkraut on the farm. So sauerkraut or something spicy like horseradish. What's your favorite? Yeah, applesauce. We make our own maple syrup. So I'm sure at some point the kids will bust out the maple syrup. Nice. And can you describe your process of making sauerkraut? I know this is like an important ancestral food. We do pickles and we do krauts. And sometimes when we've had more time, kimchi. My family's Ashkenazi from Hungary and the pickled products are important. And these are the thing. One of the things I love about sauerkraut, it's literally just cabbage and salt. That's it. You do need to chop the cabbage finely and mix it well with the salt and then pound it in some form to help the salt really enter the cabbage and release the water. And then you have brine, salt water, but we don't add water. The water's all taken out of the leaves of the cabbage. And then we let it sit. It depends on time and temperature and balance there. Usually we used to make sauerkraut in a mildly heated basement. I really liked it after three months. I like it really sour, but this season about a month ago we did it and kept the thermostat to 70 and in a month we had really nice sauerkraut and what else can you eat that has such interesting flavors and is literally two ingredients yeah and has all these good probiotics in it because you're using like the natural bacteria on the mm-hmm. on the food that then create this fermentation process so super good for you did your grandma tell you something about what you should eat with your fried Oh, yeah. Foods? Yeah. So my grandmother, may her memory be a blessing, was an expert cook and would fry things sometimes. And after having something fried, like fried potatoes usually, she'd say you have to have something sour with it. So then she'd bust out the pickles or the sauerkraut for sure. <laughs> That's great. And you had also mentioned horseradish. How do you yeah. do? you grow it? How do you prepare it? We grow horseradish in barrels, like plastic barrels from a car wash that we cut in half, filled mostly with wood chips, and then a little finished compost on the top. And then we planted the horseradish in there. And that does a few things. One, it's really loose, friable soil that gets created there. So we can get some decent sized roots without trying to till down or loosen the soil a foot and a half or two feet down, which is, which is right, tough to do. This- When the soil is really dense, the root won't grow as big and as far down. Yeah. Exactly. It also means that we can lay down a tarp and flip the whole half barrel over onto the tarp and pick out the roots we want, save a few that we're going to replant, put the whole thing back in, add some more, some fresh wood chips and compost, and then replant a few of those stems. So it's, yeah, it's a continual process. And it's a good time of year in the fall as... The above ground parts of the plant die back. All the energy grows into the roots. So it's a good time for horseradish. Nice. And how do you prepare it when you're serving it with latkes or just to have it be on your table? I would just use the food processor and a tiny bit of white vinegar. And the longer the horseradish gets grated before you put the vinegar in, the spicier it is, Hmm. but it could be the opposite. Every time I forget, I have to look it up. (laughs) And then that's it. It's just grated horseradish and vinegar. Mm, That sounds delicious. I've never served horseradish with my latkes, but I love horseradish. So I'm 
I'm inspired to try it this year. Jamie, you mentioned root vegetable latkes, and I know they're not the favorite for your kids, but when you've made them, what are some examples of root vegetables that you put in them and and how have you made them in a way that you like them? So sweet potatoes, for sure, the kids like. And then beets, carrots, rutabaga, parsnips. Yeah, so mix it up. And do you do anything different when you're using root vegetables instead of just potatoes? Yeah, there's not as much sort of squeezing, but definitely, yeah, a lot of grating. And then, you know, again, the binder egg and then some flour or matzo meal. I always do my latkes half sweet potato because I just love that. And if people need to do gluten-free ones, Mm cornstarch or potato starch or things can be added as a gluten-free option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I think about Hanukkah as this holiday that celebrates oil and we cook things in oil to sort of remember this blessing of this oil that lasted eight days when it should have just lasted one, there's such diversity of what people in the diaspora cook with oil. Are there any... Mm -hmm traditions from Jewish people from other parts of the world that you're inspired to make or that you've tried to make or just that you like? A friend came over and she's a sourdough enthusiast and she we made sourdough um, donuts with mm. her one year. Oh, so right. that was very fun. The donut. I forgot about the donuts. Yeah, there's so many fun things. We've done egg rolls before and we've done mm. akara, which is a West African black eye pea fritter. So similar to like a falafel, but made with black eye peas. So lots of fun things you can fry. Well, I thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. May you have a, a blessed holiday, and I hope to come visit you and eat sauerkraut and horseradish with you in the near future. Yeah. Amen. You're welcome. welcome. Yeah. Thank you. That was producer Tegan Engel with Shamu Fanveshi Sadeh and Jamie Sadeh. We'll have links to Tegan's ultimate latka recipe, the Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center, and Adama Farm on our website, ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Tegan and Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. And if you want to know what we're cooking up every month, subscribe to the Full Plate newsletter. I load it up with recipes from cookbooks I love, links to recent episodes, and gardening tips from Charlie Nardozzi. Go to ctpublic.org slash newsletters to sign up. You can see lots more recipes and ask a cooking question on our food site, ctpublic.org slash food. And you can always send the show an email at seasoned at ctpublic.org. I love reading your letters. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Producer Catrice Claudio talks with the authors of the book, Food We Need to Talk. Don't miss it. <laughs>